COPD is a condition that affects an estimated 3 million people in the UK. It's a common presentation to ambulance services with a wide spectrum of severity. In our last episode, we looked at the pathophysiology of the disease and the assessment. And in this episode, we're taking a look at treatment options and management plans. So, if you think nebulizers are the only medications you should be giving these patients, if you teach your students all about the hypoxic drive, or you've never heard of pre-hospital CPAP, then you need to carry on listening, because this episode will really take your breath away. Ambulance General Broadcast, any vehicles available to book on or come clear for an outstanding category 1 emergency. So hi and welcome to another episode of General Broadcast. My name's Josh, I'm a specialist paramedic in critical care. My name's Simon, I'm an advanced clinical practitioner in emergency medicine. And my name's Alex, I'm a paramedic operations officer. And this is our second episode looking at COPD. So if you didn't catch our first episode uh, on the topic, you probably want to go back and listen to that one, where we talked more about the pathophysiology of COPD and its causes. We talked about what exacerbations are, and we talked about what our assessment of these patients is going to be. This second podcast is going to be looking at management and conveyance and discharge decisions. I think before we go down the rabbit hole of talking about management, and we're definitely going to be talking about the hypoxic drive at some point in this podcast, it would probably be good to just touch on differentials because like with all of our patients, we need to give consideration to what else it could be rather than a COPD exacerbation. Just because they've got COPD doesn't mean that this acute shortness of breath is a COPD exacerbation. So Simon, what are some of the other things that we need to consider in a patient with COPD presenting with an acute shortness of breath? So when we think about differentials, we need to think about anything that can cause similar symptoms to that of what we would expect in a COPD exacerbation. So we've already kind of talked about in the last episode that chest pain is an unusual feature of a COPD exacerbation. It should make us think of other differentials. But as we know, patients who present with myocardial ischemia or infarction don't always have to present with chest pain. So it could present with a shortness of breath. So that's one thing that we need to consider is does this patient have evidence of, of infarction or ischemia? So we might want to do a 12 lead ECG to look for that. We might want to ask questions around that. We might want to think about cardiovascular history and risk factors. Staying on the heart, then we need to think about heart failure. So predominantly left-sided heart failure. We obviously know that fluid can flow back to the lungs and this can cause cough. It can cause shortness of breath. It can cause us to have production of various colors of sputum. So that could be a differential. Patients that are at risk of aspiration, such as those who are obtunded, have suffered with strokes or have ongoing dysphagia, they may have developed respiratory infections that can cause them to have productive sputum, shortness of breath and cough. We need to think about standard pneumonias, which are likely going to exacerbate a COPD, but we do need to think about that with the patients who have cough, high fever, rigors. And then we also need to think about pulmonary embolism. So this is where it can get a bit complicated because some of the signs of PE, such as right heart strain on an ECG, can actually also present with COPD patients. Yeah, that's one of the really tricky things with COPD, isn't it? That it a lot of the symptoms that uh, COPD presents with, especially exacerbation, can also be found in, in 
many other conditions. And I think it's it's really worth bearing in mind those differentials when when we actually come to treat a COPD. Yeah, fully agree. And it's actually really easy as soon as someone says in their medical history, you know, oh, I've got COPD. It's it's really easy to go, oh, you're having an exacerbation of COPD. And actually, it can really throw you off whack if you only obsess of the fact that they've got COPD means they have a COPD exacerbation. As we kind of said, you know, you can get coexisting ones. You could get a pneumonia that triggers a COPD exacerbation. You could get PE that triggers a COPD exacerbation. So they're not always separate entities either. I had a patient I treated for a COPD exacerbation not that long ago, who then I did do a CTPA because I was like, they're very short of breath, had low oxygen saturations and chest pain, which obviously we said was was abnormal. Uh, and they did have a PE, which had triggered their exacerbation of COPD. So yeah, it's, it's really important that we cover all of these. But remember, they, they don't always have to be separate from each other. Yeah, that that's a really important point is, is to just bear in mind just because you think this is a COPD exacerbation and you very well might be right that there's not something else that's that's going on and and like we've said we're we're talking about exacerbations of COPD and 80% of the time that's due to an infection but 20% of the time it could be due to something else so there might be two health problems outside of the context of infection obviously there might be two uh, health problems that you need to think about and, and look at managing but that's the differentials. What we're going to talk about now is managing this COPD exacerbation and some of the things that we need to be thinking about for the majority of these patients that we attend. And I think a good place to start, because it's often at the front of people's minds when we talk about COPD, is oxygen and what we should be doing for these patients. Now, the next thing that normally follows on is mentions of the hypoxic drive. We'll come to talk about this in a little bit more detail in a second, but we're about to get quite heavy on pathophysiology and talking about physiological theory for the reasons that we might want to be careful with pre-hospital supplementary oxygen. But I think it would probably be quite helpful if we get one thing absolutely clear, which is that there is an association between supplementary O2 and worsening type 2 respiratory failure in the sense that through whatever mechanism we know if we give these patients that are co2 retainers too much oxygen they do end up with high levels of arterial co2 now we'll discuss why that might be the case in a second but are we all happy and we all agree on that we should be titrating our levels of oxygen in these patients to avoid worsening a type 2 respiratory failure yeah, I fully agree, Josh. And I, I think there's something that I, I hear a lot in the ambulance services. Oh, um, well, you know, hypoxia will kill your patient quicker than hypercapnia and you should just give them oxygen and then let the hospital sort out their blood gases, which, you know, hypoxia will kill a patient quicker than hypercapnia. But I think we need to be a little bit more nuanced than that. We are healthcare professionals and we should manage patients professionally. And there's a good study by Robert et al. that was posted in the Thorax Journal, which actually looked at acidosis and need for non-invasive ventilation and mortality in hospitalized COPD patients. And one thing that they commented on was that even pre-hospital misuse of oxygen can markedly increase hypercapnia and actually can have a detrimental effect on patient outcome. So I really think that we should, you know, be following proper oxygen therapy guidelines are set forward by the BTS to make sure that we give 
controlled, titrated, and correctly administered oxygen is not something we can just go on a free-for-all and just smash in and not worry about it. Our treatment does have consequences. Okay, so we seem to be on the same page then with regards to carefully administering oxygen. And most people will be familiar with the six-minute NEB recommendations in JRCalc and the 88 to 92% SATs target range in a, in a patient that we believe to be a CO2 retainer. But let's talk about the theory of why that is the case. So most people will have been taught the hypoxic drive theory. Simon, do you want to let us know a little bit about what that is and why perhaps oxygen might be detrimental in the context of that theory? Hypoxic drive, or oxygen-induced hyperventilation as it's also known, is a theory that's been around for a long time. And it basically talks about the fact that there are two central drivers for respiration. That is hypoxemia or hypercapnia. We know that COPD or some COPD patients spend a lot of their lives chronically hypercapnic and the theory goes that they no longer respond to the stimulus of having high CO2 levels and then they move to an oxygen level to drive their respiration. So basically their chemoreceptors pick up the fact that they have a chronic low level of oxygen and this is what triggers them to breathe instead of their level of carbon dioxide. It goes on to then say that because a patient gets used to this chronic level of hypoxemia that if we give supplemental oxygen to a COPD patient this raises their oxygen levels. Chemoreceptors detect that level of oxygen and therefore think that the patient doesn't need to breathe anymore so causes hypoventilation and eventually can then cause apnea and obviously with hyperventilation then becomes increasing carbon dioxide or hypercapnia. Now a study done in the 1980s kind of disproved this and that was written by Orbia et al. It is a small study. It only looked at 22 ICU patients with known COPD and acute respiratory failure. But basically, they looked at their minute ventilation and PaCO2 values when breathing room air and then while breathing supplemental oxygen. And what they noticed was that all patients had an initial drop in minute ventilation when placed on supplemental oxygen but that these rapidly recovered to baseline levels. And at no time did PaCO2 start to increase. Therefore, they found no correlation between minute ventilation and increased PaCO2 when a patient was placed on oxygen. So basically, the conclusion of this study was that actually where a hypoxic drive has a small effect on decreasing minute ventilation, it's only a transient effect. And actually, that cannot be the reason for hypercapnia in these patients when they're placed on oxygen administration. Yeah, I mean, if only it was that clear cut, hey. So there was a paper that took place about 20 years after that Orba paper that you mentioned, Tutti, by Robinson et al. And they were actually looking to prove one of the theories that I'm going to talk about in a second, the VQ mismatch theory. But they ended up concluding that actually that, that couldn't have been the cause of hypercapnia in CO2 retaining COPD patients. But hypoventilation as a result of supplemental oxygen provision was the cause. So it doesn't sound as though it's as clear cut as, as the hypoxic drive is just a myth. 
Yeah, so clearly it's not that straightforward. And as you quite rightly said, Josh, there's uh, there's there's papers on either side of this argument. And there's also other theories as well that people have um, posited to suggest why people become hypercapnic when given oxygen during COPD. Uh, so another one is the, the Haldane effect. So Alex, do you want to explain a little bit about the Haldane effect? Yeah, absolutely. I get the uh, the nice, uh, simple aspect of this to explain to everyone. So uh, hold on to your hats because this has got a fair amount of uh, chemistry involved. I'll try and uh, I'll try and make it relatively easy to follow along. That's why I picked hypoxic drive, mate. When we were splitting these up, because it was yeah, much I kind of lucked out here, didn't I? <laughs> So the Haldane effect essentially is a property of hemoglobin. And we all know that hemoglobin is found in, in red blood cells and is the, uh, is the molecule which is responsible for carrying oxygen around the body. One thing which you may not be so familiar with is that hemoglobin also carries carbon dioxide around the body. And this makes a lot of physiological sense because in venous blood, there is a higher degree of carbon dioxide which needs to be transported to the lungs to be excreted from the body. The Haldane effect, which was first described by John Scott Haldane, hence the name, is a physiochemical phenomenon which describes the increased capacity of blood to carry carbon dioxide under conditions of decreased haemoglobin oxygen saturation. So the lower the oxygen saturation of a particular blood cell or a particular bit of haemoglobin, uh, the more likely it is to bind to carbon dioxide. And I think if we're going to really go into any depth with this, it's important to uh, to just run over very quickly a couple of other terms which are which are quite important to understand. So partial pressure, uh, something which is is talked about a lot in blood gases. Partial pressure is the amount of gas dissolved in the plasma because there's three ways that carbon dioxide can be carried in the blood. It can be bound to Hemoglobin. It can also bind to amino groups, creating carbamino compounds. And the last way is that it can be dissolved in plasma. And that's really where the Haldane effect comes into uh, comes into play. When we increase oxygenation, we shift from the normal point on what we call the carbon dioxide dissociation curve. And if you're familiar with respiratory physiology, you'll probably have heard of something called the oxygen dissociation curve. Well, there is also a carbon dioxide dissociation curve. And the difference between the two is that the carbon dioxide curve is steeper and more linear. It has no plateau. And the reason I mention it is because one of the effects of the oxygen disassociation curve is because it plateaus, we reach a point where increasing oxygenation to a particular part of the lungs will not increase the effectiveness of oxygen exchange. Now, that's not the case when we talk about carbon dioxide. So why is all that important? Well, it's important because when you increase blood oxygenation by providing supplementary O2 to a patient who has COPD, what you're doing is you're increasing blood oxygen whilst keeping the total CO2 content of that blood the same. When you oxygenate hemoglobin, the carbon dioxide that was bound to it is forced out of the hemoglobin and has nowhere else really to go but to dissolve into the plasma. So what you end up with is, yes, increased oxygenation of hemoglobin, but you also end up with a higher partial pressure of CO2 dissolved in the blood. Now, that's not a huge problem unless you are a person who, for example, has a fairly standard tachypnea 
like a CAPD patient. Now, because of their respiratory problems and tachypnea, CAPD patients are not effectively able to ventilate the CO2 out of the lungs. So you end up in a situation, just to to briefly summarize that, you end up in a situation where you add more oxygen, you force CO2 out of the hemoglobin into the blood, but a patient with CAPD may not be able to effectively eliminate that carbon dioxide. So you end up with hypercapnia. Now we're fairly, fairly comfortable with the chemistry of what's going on. However, studies that have been conducted have shown that that may account for up to 25% of the carbon dioxide found in a hypercapnic patient. So although we're fairly certain what's going on in terms of the chemistry, it still doesn't explain fully why certain patients become hypercapnic when they are administered supplementary oxygen in COPD. So that doesn't really help to clarify things either. So what you're saying is we could have just ignored the majority of things you've been waffling on about because we don't know and there's no proof for it, yeah? Which, to be fair, is something you could say for a lot of what I add to the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so you boys have basically waffled on and said, well, you're not really sure your theories have any evidence to to explain what's happening in its entirety. So let me give it a go. Uh, There's a third theory, which is the ventilation perfusion mismatch or VQ mismatch. And essentially, the basis of this theory is that oxygen screws up the remodeling that patients with COPD's lungs have undergone. So as we discussed in the last podcast, pulmonary vasculature can be remodeled to create the best gas exchange circumstances for the body. And the primary driver for this is alveolar O2. So areas of the lung with a low alveolar PO2 will have blood diverted away from them to better functioning areas of the lung. After all, why would you waste perfusion on an alveolus that's not ventilating properly? And COPD patients' lungs have remodeled themselves over the years and course of the disease to create the best possible ventilation and perfusion circumstances for their lungs. They're going to have large areas of the lung that don't receive adequate ventilation because of the pathology of their disease. They often have a lot of basal atelectasis, so the bottoms of their lungs don't really get well ventilated. And there can be large sections of the lungs that essentially become dead space and don't properly undertake gas exchange. And so the lungs will have, to an extent, remodeled themselves to divert blood flow to the alveoli that are functioning well. Now, when we introduce high levels of FiO2, so 100% nion inspiratory oxygen, we muddle this up because all of a sudden, alveolus that were performing badly and ventilating badly can get artificially high levels of PaO2. And this essentially confuses the lung and diverts blood supply to these alveolus that appear to have a reasonable level of O2 in them, but still aren't undergoing adequate ventilation. So in a nutshell, the supplementary O2 that we're providing adversely affects the COPD patient's own remodeling that their body has done to help overcome the sequelae of their COPD. And this leads to a rise in CO2 because the better functioning areas of the lung are receiving less blood supply as that is being diverted to areas that aren't functioning 
and aren't removing CO2s effectively. And as we've already discussed some of the papers before, there there appears to be a level of evidence that supports the contribution of the VQ mismatch theory to the development of hypercapnia in these patients from supplementary O2. So boys, that was that was quite a lot of information and data. There's three basic theories that we've talked about. We've talked about the hypoxic drive or oxygen-induced hypoventilation, the Haldane effect, and the VQ mismatch theory. My takeaway from that is that the hypoventilation or hypoxic drive theory is pretty much discredited and not really supported by the evidence structure. And what seems to be the case is that it's a combination of the VQ mismatch and the Haldane effect that contribute to the development of hypercapnia as a result of supplementary oxygen. Are we fairly happy that's the case? We should probably let the term hypoxic drive die? Yeah, I think so. As much as there is contrasting evidence i i kind of feel that the medical literature nowadays and most expert medical opinion kind of says that hypoxic drive is a is a myth so i think we we probably need to as you said let that one let that one go i don't think it's necessarily clear exactly the mechanism that we're looking for but um hopefully maybe in future research we might find an answer to that but at the moment, yeah, I think you're right. A combination of Haldane and uh, VQ mismatching is, is is probably the most likely theories that, that find a reason for it at the moment. So how are we going to adjust treatment? This is a management and treatment podcast. So what are we going to be doing to affect these patients? We've already talked about the 88 to 92% SATs target, which I think most people are, are widely aware of, and potentially limiting nebulizers to six minutes because we're oxygen-driven neb, not air-driven neb. Obviously, it would be great in the future if we do have the ability to do an air-driven neb. And likewise, you know, it would be good if we were able to get access to Venturi masks. So typically these aren't really carried on ambulances and I'm not quite sure why, but uh, Venturi masks can be really, really useful for tailoring the percentage of FiO2 that our patients are receiving. But we don't have those uh, available to us. So I guess the next best thing that we could practically be looking to to use would be a medium flow mask. So just don't forget that we have got those in our toolkit. We don't just have to put these patients on, on high flow. We can really work to titrate the level of FiO2 that these patients are on. Yeah, definitely. And to add on to that, the, the nasal cannula is exactly the same. So you can you can vary the flow rate, like you said, for, for medium flow masks and, and titrate your oxygen to, to a certain percentage. It may not be as accurate as Venturi masks, but I, I think the manufacturers do give recommendations. So I, I imagine it'll be it'll be pretty close to it. And then probably not the case in patients that we're going to be conveying to hospital. Obviously, it's impractical to bring an air-driven NEB to the ED department with us a lot of the time. But particularly if we're giving nebulizers to some of these patients in their own homes and they have got an air-driven NEB system, we should probably consider, again, in the context of them not being significantly hypoxic, we should probably consider whether or not we want to uh, trial giving them an air-driven NEB first if if, if that's uh, an option that's available to us. Yeah, completely agree. We're definitely, if we're going down the discharge lines, as you said, Josh, and they're not hypoxic and you know we're going to manage them at home obviously we've got um 
the use of like meter dose inhalers and spacers. But if they have got an air-driven nebulizer, there's no reason you can't use their own equipment at all. Yeah, and on the topic of inhalers, if time allows, we should probably be getting them to show us their inhaler technique before we start a neb. Yeah, I completely agree. I was I was going to bring inhaler technique up uh, a little bit when it comes to sort of discharge advice and, and things like that. But absolutely, if the patient is well enough when we first arrive to demonstrate their inhaler technique to us, we should be doing that because there's often things that you can pick up where they can improve their inhaler technique. And 99 times out of 10, it's either that they don't use a spacer, which significantly improves the delivery of the medication to the lungs, or that they haven't cleaned their spacer for years. And there's probably a, a, a significant amount of um, medication remnants that bunging it up and, and preventing it from working normally. So um, we can definitely use that as a, as a teachable moment and, and improve their, uh, their inhaler technique if they can demonstrate it to us. And, and that might also need a referral back to their respiratory clinician to to aid and support them in improving that technique. So we'll start by talking about bronchodilator therapy, and most people will be familiar with salbutamol, the short-acting beta agonist, and ipotropium bromide, the short-acting anti-muscarinic. So let's start with salbutamol. Salbutamol is uh, short-acting. It's a selective beta-2 adrenergic receptor agonist, which we use in the treatment of asthma and COPD. It's 29 times more selective for beta-2 adrenergic receptors, which are the ones that are in the respiratory tract in, in the lungs. And by binding with these receptors, it brings about bronchodilation. Again, most people will be familiar with the dose of 5 milligrams nebulized for adults, and we'll be administering this with between 6 and 8 litres of oxygen. So it's important to consider some of the side effects of salbutamol. So salbutamol is a group of medications called methylxanthines, and that's particularly helpful to bear in mind when we're thinking about some of the unintended side effects because salbutamol can make people get a little bit irritated. It can cause a tachycardia as a result of its beta-1 adrenergic receptor agonism. And in particularly high doses, it can give us a little bit of gastric distress, particularly some gastric reflux and nausea. So that's that's just important to bear in mind because I've definitely seen it in practice, people banging back-to-back nebulizers on, on patients, and they will very quickly reach their therapeutic dose of salbutamol. And any more past that is just going to increase the risk of some of these unintended side effects. Tachycardia can be particularly problematic in, in some of these patients, particularly if they're a bit fluid deplete and can increase, one, their myocardial oxygen demand, but two, their risk of arrhythmia. We need to bear in mind that salbutamol has got about a 15 to 30 minute onset time, but it will have a therapeutic effect for, for at least four hours. So in the context of these patients' treatments with us, it doesn't make a huge lot of sense to just be giving them the massive doses of salbutamol back to back. Um, we have to bear in mind the risk of the adverse side effects, which could be more problematic for these patients when it comes to thinking about further treatment when considering things like non-invasive ventilation in the ED. So the second drug that people will be familiar with is ipotropium bromide. As I've said, this is a short-acting anti-muscarinic. And whereas salbutamol acts on the beta-2 adrenergic receptors to bring about 
bronchodilation. The anticholinergics tend to work on the pathways that prevent it from occurring. So they work on a, a, on a longer time span. And although they tend not to bring about active bronchodilation, they prevent it from reoccurring and, and can prevent it from worsening. So that's the two bronchodilator therapies. The next medication we should probably talk about is steroids, and that's going to be hydrocortisone and prednisolone. So Simon, do you want to talk to us about steroids? Yeah, so steroids obviously are um, effectively synthetic versions of cortisol, which is a naturally occurring glucocorticoid hormone produced by the adrenal glands. So obviously we can give a synthetic higher doses in order to see the same benefits that we get from that naturally occurring process. The two most common ones that we are going to use in relation to COPD are going to be hydrocortisone as a parental medication, so either IV or IM, and prednisolone, which is going to be the, the oral medication, which if we're going to discharge a patient, we need to source them for, for their exacerbation of COPD. Glucocorticoids work because they have a powerful anti-inflammatory with some immunosuppressive effect. They work by binding to glucocorticoid receptors, which result in down-regulation of the inflammatory cytokines and simultaneously up-regulating anti-inflammatory genes. We talked a lot in the pathophysiology section of COPD about these processes, so you can kind of see how glucocorticoids exert their effect by slowing this process down to reduce that airway inflammation in edema. There's strong evidence that in moderate to severe exacerbations of COPD, that steroids improve lung function, gaseous exchange, and the symptom of dyspnea, as well as lessening treatment failure, lowering relapse rates, and shortening hospital admission times. It's probably for this reason that treatment with steroids is recommended by nearly all major guidelines on the subject of COPD exacerbation, including the NICE COPD guideline, the Joint European Respiratory Society and American Thoracic Society COPD exacerbation guideline, and the GOLD, so that's Global Initiative for Chronic Obstructive Lung Disease 2022 guidelines. All of these bodies recommend steroid administration, but interestingly, the evidence suggests that there is a non-inferiority of oral versus IV administration in terms of benefit. So what that basically means is, is that IV doesn't have a benefit over oral. So you can give oral prednisolone or IV hydrocortisone with just the same effect. In fact, most of them recommend oral prednisolone and kind of say that IV hydrocortisone can have benefit and should be used when patients may not be able to take an oral medication for whatever reason. So all these bodies advocate giving some steroids to exacerbation of COPD patients. And that's something I've always done in my practice. However, that's always kind of been outside of JR Calc because JR Calc has not listed exacerbation of COPD as an indicator for giving IV hydrocortisone. However, Simon, there has been an update within the last month. Uh, an, an update has been published by JR Calc, which now indicates hydrocortisone for acute exacerbation of COPD. And therefore, it's something which absolutely should be included in all paramedic practice in the UK. 
which is a bit of a shame because me and Josh were preparing for this podcast by having a bit of a debate about whether we should step outside of ambulance practice guidelines in order to administer uh, IV hydrocortisone and steroids to patients with exacerbation of COPD that we were transporting to hospital because all other guidelines indicate that it's really valuable. So we were going to have that debate, but um, now it's in Jaukauk, it's kind of going to be accepted standard practice. And I think, if nothing else, I would like to thank the JR Calc Committee for uh, preventing us being subjected to this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very, very happy that it's in the guidelines because it means that people are going to feel very empowered to give the right care to these patients and, and to give better care to these patients because it, it, it's definitely a difficult situation to talk about in national paramedic practice isn't it stepping outside of what is accepted as a national guideline and i think we were both going to conclude that you know in our own practice uh, we'd be very comfortable about that because guidelines guides clinicians decide and we we are able to use evidence base and guidance to to dictate our practice and legally that would have been supported because it's a medical exemption so it is good that that is now completely unambiguous and people will be supported and expected to give this important medication to these patients. But yeah, I still can't help but being a little bit disappointed that two hours of work and discussion about exactly how we were going to phrase this sensitive topic have kind of been for naught. Yeah, I, I, for what it's worth, I completely agree. Uh, I have previously stepped outside of those guidelines to give it. Um, so I'm also very pleased that it is now within the national guidance. One thing that is interesting, though, is I believe, Simon, most of the guidelines talk about oral prednisolone versus IV hydrocortisone. Is there, there's something in that, I think? Yeah, so as I mentioned earlier, there um, there's no difference really between oral prednisolone and IV hydrocortisone in terms of benefit. Obviously, oral route is preferred, so most of these guidelines make reference to oral prednisolone as the steroid of choice, but obviously we only carry an, an IV hydrocortisone. Although I would add that in preparation for this podcast, whilst checking the hydrocortisone update, I have also noticed that in the drugs page of JRCalc, prednisolone for exacerbation of COPD orally has also appeared. So I don't know of any ambulance services currently that are giving prednisolone for their patients that are sent to hospital, but obviously watch this space because it has appeared in JRCalc. So, um, that might be something that's happening. Yeah, so that would be really interesting if that does become a uh, standard standard practice. I think it's probably worth making this point in that hydrocortisone is a national medical exemption for paramedics. So we've always legally been able to give it and all that's changed is the JRCAP guideline has now accepted the national position and, and would advocate giving it. But legally, there, there's, there's not been an a change necessarily in your ability to give that drug. In the context of prednisolone, that is not a medical exemption. And if trusts do have it on board, their their ambulances, it will be part of a patient-specific pathway or or a PGD that they will have signed. And, And they are only able to administer or leave that drug in the context of which that pathway specifies. So the trust I used to work for had prednisolone packs for asthma when you're discharging them. What you would not be able to do 
is apply that and leave that with a patient who's suffering a CBD exacerbation because it's outside of the context of that, that pathway. So you would need to ensure that either the law has changed or the PGD-PSD that you're using within your trust has changed. I think that's a really important point there, Josh, that actually, you know, we, we we say guidelines guide clinicians decide which is definitely true you know there's lots of guidelines out there jail calc isn't the only guideline but jail calc itself can on occasions be confusing as it lists drugs that aren't meds exempted txa is a really classic example where basically you need a pgd to go with it and the pgds are legal documents they have to be followed to the letter by the law so yeah if you're going to step outside a guideline assessment is is one thing management is is slightly different especially when it comes to drugs so just make sure that you are working within the law and that there is an evidence base to guide your practice both of those have to be have to be in place we, we should probably just mention what GR Calc says about administering hydrocortisone. So you would be in the context of COPD exacerbation where you're taking these patients to hospital, you'd be giving 100 milligrams of IV or IM hydrocortisone. Uh, so typically that's that's one vial as opposed to the two that we would give in asthma, but obviously check your, your concentration. So that's 100 milligrams IV. And I guess the other thing to bear in mind is you should give this slowly. So you should give hydrocortisone uh, generally over about two minutes. Don't give it as a rapid push because a side effect of giving hydrocortisone too quickly is a, a burning or a severe itching sensation in their thighs and groin, which we really don't want to add on top of these people's problems. I've seen paramedics give hydrocortisone too quickly, Josh, and you're exactly right that, that you do get that side effect. And the, the other concern and side effect that I've also seen if it's given too quickly is um, hypertension. I've, I've seen patients nearly have syncopes because their blood pressure dumps if given too quickly. So yeah, nice and slow over a couple of minutes and that'll prevent all of those those side effects from happening. That's the emergency treatment pretty much in a nutshell that we're going to be talking about. I think we can talk about some of the in-hospital pathways and some of the in-hospital stuff uh, a little bit later in the podcast. But now we're kind of at the stage where we need to talk about admission versus remaining at home. We can, we can clearly be giving the bronchodilators as a, as a trial to see if it improves things and these patients may be able to be kept at home. In the context of steroids, as we've already alluded to, all of these patients suffering an exacerbation should have steroids. If they're going in with us, we can give it IV. But if we're keeping them at home, they can either have the prednisolone from their rescue pack. Um, we should remind them to, to take that as they've been instructed. Or we can contact the prescriber in primary care to sort them out with antibiotics as well as steroids if that hasn't already occurred. But what kind of things can swing the balance? So what kind of what kind of factors do we need to consider, guys, when we're trying to make the decision? Is this person well enough to stay at home in the community or do they need to go in for in-hospital management? So obviously each trust is going to have its own specific guideline or each employer is going to have its own specific guidelines uh, around this subject. But a really good starting place is uh, the NICE guidance, as as is often the case. NICE have a really good document called Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disease in Over-16s Diagnosis and Management. And that has a little table in it, which... Um, which really helps to clarify some of the concerning features which really should be seen in hospital or must be seen in hospital. Going through that table, some of the things that would definitely indicate a trip to hospital for, for a patient with an exacerbation of CAPD would be if the patient's not coping at home, that is a, a definite indicator that the patient needs to be in hospital. And one of the things that it mentions is breathlessness mild versus severe so what i mean what do you what do you guys think in terms of mild versus severe in this context 
there's some points that we can get people to think about and 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 questions to ask but i i feel particularly in the context of copd you know we've said that this is a progressive terminal illness we need to base this on the patient's normal function and their normal activities of daily life so the the obvious thing is are they able to get to the toilet and things safely one are they able to mobilize there but are they physically able to make the normal transport distances that we would expect them to the toilet to the fridge um, up and downstairs if that's where their bed is you know we can tolerate a a level of breathlessness in doing that but if someone really looks like simply going up to get themselves a cup of tea they're about to breathe their last then then that would be severe to me however we know that the other end of the spectrum there are patients that can be completely bedbound with this condition and and wouldn't be able to to do that ordinarily or their normal level of COPD means that they really really struggle to just get next door and it takes them 5 minutes to recover on a good day so we really need to be specific and and ask the patient what their normal functional capacity is and what their normal ability to to undertake activities of daily life are and then focus on the deterioration i definitely agree with that and i think you're completely right it's about a patient's baseline function the the other things we need to take into account are yes it could be a really bad exacerbation but there does come a transition point when actually we should probably start thinking about palliating these patients and not acutely managing their exacerbation in terms of hospital admission. I think this is done on a case-by-case basis and exploring patients' wishes and you know treatment escalation plans and, and various other things. But obviously, just keep that in mind that just because an exacerbation is really severe, it needs to be an holistic assessment of the patient and whether we you know, go to hospital or not is is not always based upon severity, but can be based on the patient. But but yeah, I agree with Josh. On the topic of palliation, the gold standards framework does give us COPD specific indicators that may give us some recognition that a patient is approaching an end of life need with COPD as opposed to obviously what we've talked about the you know this is a chronic long term palliative condition, but actually just to guide our decision making for patients that may warrant other management plans as we said it's it's very holistic and it's individual based but things to look out for might be that the, the disease has been assessed to be severe so that's an fev1 of under 30 percent predicted so obviously we might find this information on previous paperwork or the patient might know themselves or family might know themselves there might be hospital letters if there's been reoccurring hospital admissions, so at least three in the last 12 months solely due to COPD. If they uh, fulfill the criteria and on long-term oxygen therapy at home. If there is an MRC grade four to five shortness of breath after 100 metres on flat surface or the patient is completely confined to their house because of their COPD. If we find signs and symptoms of core pulmonale, which is obviously evident right-sided heart failure along with the COPD, a combination of other factors like anorexia that is related to COPD as opposed to another condition, lots of previous ITU admissions or need for non-invasive ventilation, or more than six weeks of systemic steroids needed for COPD exacerbations within the past six months. 
so you introduce that as a prognostic indicator guidance what what's that prognostic of if they have if they have two of those features what's the prognosis that they may are more indicative of needing an end of life care approach that they're approaching end of life care basically okay so it just helps us guide decision making obviously it's still holistic but it helps us guide decisions towards the fact that this patient may not be appropriate for aggressive treatment but may benefit from end-of-life care management instead. Fine. The the other thing I want to add was about trying some medical management first. If you go into a house and you're seeing someone with a moderate to severe exacerbation of COPD, obviously explore what they've done so far, but try them on some nebulizers and see how they respond to those nebulizers. It's easy to throw someone in the back of an ambulance that looks really sick, but actually once they've been given a little bit of medical treatment, their condition can considerably improve. So it may be sometimes worthwhile trying to see if you can improve that breathlessness or improve that condition just by giving a quick nebulizer and then reviewing the patient afterwards. One thing I'm always keen on discussing when when we talk about palliating patients is I, I think that's a really valid point that we need to avoid taking people to hospital just based on the severity of their symptoms. And I, and I think the main takeaway point from this is, although, you know, a, a table such as the one in the NICE guidelines is, is a really great basis for for an admit versus discharge decision we need to be really careful about what they you know what they call cookbook medicine where you know a a plus b equals admit to hospital it really needs to be based as as we've said it really needs to be based on the patient's baseline and and a holistic approach but i think we also need to be where the other side of that which is you know we have to be very careful not to not to turn up to a patient who is having an exacerbation of each copd which is potentially treatable look around them and make judgments based on things like their age uh, and, and and other factors we need to be careful that we're not palliating patients too early based on what is most likely for us going to be a single episode of care that that happened a few weeks ago. I, I had a patient that came in with COPD, looked really cachectic, looked really, really sick. And actually, on face value, it was an easy decision to to from from looking at them to to palliate them. Yet, obviously, as part of the holistic assessment, I, I had a chat with the family. And then the family basically said, well, no, the patient actually has anorexia and, and always looks this thin and frail. But up to a week ago, that person was still working and had a full-time job, albeit at home, but they were still working and has a high quality of life. So yeah, completely agree. It's completely patient-specific and you need to get a gauge of a patient's baseline before you make that decision. And if you can't get a, ba- a baseline of, of the patient's condition, then I think that we, you know, we can't really make that decision at, at the time, just knowing them for that short period. Completely agree. If you, if you look at a lot of the COPD literature and, and the COPD specific podcasts that we can link to, everything that it says is, okay, yes, we have to accept that this is a terminal disease. That doesn't mean they are on end of life care for the duration of that disease. We should be expecting the majority of these patients to get better and return to a normal level of function from these exacerbations. And we shouldn't just look at someone who looks really, really unwell now and assume that is their normal baseline. It's really important to not be afraid of palliating patients when it's appropriate, but you're absolutely right. 
to be quite honest, the vast majority of COPD exacerbations that we're going to see probably will not fall into that category. And I think it's worth just running through a couple of the other really big um, flags which would indicate that a patient absolutely needs to be seen in hospital. A patient presenting with very severe central cyanosis, which is difficult to resolve, or a patient who is requiring more than 28% oxygen to maintain SATs within the normal expected 88 to 92% range. Any patient with an impaired level of consciousness, and these are things which are going to be fairly familiar for a lot of the presentations that we see pre-hospitally, a lot of those, those big red flags, acute onset confusion, a rapid rate of onset. Very significant comorbidities may also be an indicator, although obviously we've just had that discussion around palliation. Another thing which is also worth taking into account is if it is a patient who is prescribed rescue medicines, if they're prescribed antibiotics and steroids through a COPD service, if that patient has been taking those medicines and they are not effective within a reasonable time scale. So we're not talking about a patient who's been taking antibiotics and steroids since two hours before calling or since that morning. But if they've been taking those medicines for a reasonable time scale and are having a treatment failure, they're still experiencing exacerbation symptoms and things are either worsening or not improving within a reasonable time scale. I don't think it's unreasonable to consider admitting those patients to hospital either. Finally, sticking with the theme of holistic assessment, obviously we want to look at the patient's social circumstances. So, you know, they've got a good family network or carers around them or do they live on their own and and are they coping with that or not coping with that? Obviously, in terms of safety netting, it's much easier to leave a patient at home if you know that there is an additional safety net of family members or carers that are checking on that patient regularly to see if they're responding to treatment. Perfect. And then with regards to the plan, for keeping these patients at home if they are appropriate for discharge. It's going to be the usual package in the sense that we need to safety net them appropriately and give really good safe discharge advice. We need to make them clear about what we think the the cause of the exacerbation was today, the expected path that that disease is going to take, as well as what they need to do in order to get better. Now, as we've said, 80% of these exacerbations are going to be some kind of infection. So we need to give the usual infection safety uh, netting advice, making sure that they're aware of sepsis. And we need to arrange for follow-up generally from a prescriber for these patients from primary care to ensure that they've got access to antibiotics and oral steroids that's normally going to be a five-day course and ensure that they know what to do when they're reaching the end of that course if they're still unwell. So for more specific things about discharge, we've got a safe discharge podcast. You can find that on our website. And rather than going into detail about exactly how we give that safety netting advice, we've done it at length in that podcast. And I guess the, the one other point that I'd just like to make on that is remember that 20% of these probably aren't going to be an effective course. They could be something else. And we need to have a think about that and address it if appropriate. So an example that that I think I might have given before is uh, it was a second presentation to a chap with uh, a COPD exacerbation. And uh, so an ambulance crew had been out 12 hours beforehand. And this guy wasn't having a infective cause of his exacerbation. The reason that he kept having these flare-ups is because he and his wife both smoked 
and to get over the smell of cigarette smoke, his wife had seven airwick automatic diffusers around the house. And me with relatively healthy lungs was struggling to breathe in the house. And, and, and that was the reason for, for this chap's exacerbation. So it was, it was actually a case of flagging that up to them and getting them to turn off their, their airwick. Oh, did I tell that story last episode? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. oh I just love telling my stories. <laughs> is it, is it do, worth? Do I know, when, when, I, I, when I used to work on the road, <laughs> did I tell you about the airwick story? <laughs> Yes, Grandad Josh. (laughs) So that's the discharge and keeping people at home side of the coin. If we've made the decision to take somebody into hospital, we've already kind of discussed our treatment. So we're going to be giving them appropriate nebulizers, um, but also recognizing when we might have reached maximum therapeutic doses within our time window. We're now going to be giving these patients IV hydrocortisone. I think it's probably reasonable to have a little consideration about whether or not these patients need fluids. Now, clearly, most people will be comfortable with giving fluids if the patient is hypotensive. We also need to bear in mind that CUPD is going to have quite a toll on their heart. So they might have right-sided heart failure, in which case we do need to be careful with fluids. But we also need to bear in mind that these patients are likely to have an infection They could have been slowly getting dehydrated as a result of that. And these patients are going to be tachypneic and have been tachypneic for a long period of time. And one of the, in fact, I I think it's the top contributing factor to loss of fluid is respiration. And these patients potentially may have been tachypneic for hours at a time. So we just need to give a consideration to if they're dehydrated and if these patients are potentially fluid deplete. We're then going to get them into hospital. And it might be that we are taking these patients into resus. Simon, do you want to tell us a little bit about the resus management of these patients, how an ABG factors into their care and how the decision around invasive versus non-invasive ventilation is made? So when we receive these patients in ED, we are obviously going to carry on the medical management that's been started pre-hospitally. So we're going to probably go to titrate that oxygen to maintain SATs. Uh, We're going to carry on giving back-to-back nebulizers as air-driven, ideally with oxygen uh, administered nasally, uh, if we can maintain SATs that way. We are going to administer steroids if they haven't um, already been given. And then we are going to undertake a range of tests, so some bloods. But as part of that, we're going to probably be doing an arterial blood gas. So the purpose of the arterial blood gas is to look for the patient's oxygenation, but also to look for their CO2 retention. This will help us formulate our ongoing management plan and also uh, assess our treatment to see whether we're responding or deteriorating. If a patient is still hypercapnic and this is getting worse, we might then consider non-invasive ventilation, which has its own indications and contraindications, which are outside the scope of this episode. But effectively, non-invasive ventilation is going to help us manage that hypercapnia. Obviously, if the patient can't tolerate non-invasive ventilation, then we need to move on to the decision of do we then do invasive ventilation, which would obviously be intubation and an ITU admission. So that's effectively how we use arterial blood gas to kind of indicate our ongoing treatment plan. 
we're probably going to give some uh, course of antibiotics. That's normally some combination therapy of something like um, IV amoxicillin and oral doxycycline for patients that can have penicillin-based antibiotics to manage infection. And then obviously we're going to refer these patients on to the in-hospital medical team or uh, the intensive care team, depending on the outcome of the treatment and the progress of the patient. Simon, you mentioned uh, non-invasive ventilation there. CPAP and BiPAP might be terms that people are more uh, more aware of, perhaps. Now, I know that some trusts have certainly trialled it. I don't know if any trusts are still actively using non-invasive ventilation pre-hospitally. But do we have any thoughts on that? Because my, my thoughts are, I think it's probably outside really of what we're talking about here but i think it might be something that people may want to go and have a look at some of the research and maybe as a service improvement project for someone in the future so yeah that's a really tricky question as to the the benefits and the indications for pre-hospital non-invasive ventilation i i think you're completely right i think that's an area for future research i couldn't comment on whether that will be advantageous to patients whether we you know we need other factors first you know do we need pre-hospital point of care blood gas to help facilitate that you know is it something that we could start regardless i think it it, you're right it needs more research i don't don't think we can comment that it's going to be beneficial i think it would be interesting to look into i think there are some trusts that have trialed it or have been looking at trialing it because I know this is definitely something I looked into when I was on the road because we we did have, you know, an, an average 40, 45 minute blue light run to our nearest hospital. So I can definitely see some benefits. I think one of the, the biggest uh, barriers to uh, to starting somebody on non-invasive ventilation is if they've reached the point of exhaustion where they're obtunded, partially obtunded, potentially not appropriate to put them on non-invasive ventilation. So if you can start that earlier before they reach the point of exhaustion, before they reach the point of being particularly hypercarbic, then it could definitely have, have real benefits to these patients. I think the risk is that you aren't selective with who you use it on pre-hospitally and there's a risk that everybody just gets NIV potentially uh, inappropriately and we also you know we have to to bear in mind the risks of non-invasive ventilation particularly in patients that that could have an element of circulatory compromise you know they've got a lot of pressure in their chest their circulatory return is going to be impeded they're potentially fluid deplete uh, in which case forcing pressure into their chest could potentially push them over the edge and and make them hypotensive so um so yeah it's definitely an interesting topic but i I think being in hospital having arterial blood gases and things to to help inform that decision definitely makes it more targeted you know a lot of these things we need to think about not just the benefit and what happens when it goes right but the negatives and what happens if it goes wrong you know we have readily access to to chest x-rays and obviously a portable chest x-ray in in ed which can show us things like small pneumothoraces which might be contraindicated in using non-invasive ventilation which you probably won't have access to pre-hospitally we've all probably listened to that cbd patient's chest where they're just shifting such poor air entry you can't really hear much so you can't really like even clinically decide if there could be a pneumothorax so I think that, yeah, you're, you're completely right, Josh, that actually we, we have a lot of tools that facilitate that this can be applied much better in, in, in ED. So, you know, we have to think of the negatives as well. So it, it's possibly not going to be a 
you know a solution as i said we i think we need to watch this space as to whether it would add any benefit and more research is needed i've just found that trial that um that i was alluding to it was called the acute pilot and it looks like it was done in in west mid so i didn't realize the the results had been published but on a, on a quick scan of uh, of that and we'll we'll link to the trial in the article it came out in 2020 it looks like they've concluded that there was difficulty in identifying the patients that that would have benefited from from pre-hospital CPAP and their main conclusion was that they didn't recommend a larger trial to explore its effectiveness it didn't look in in their trial that it was only of 77 people but it, it didn't look as though there was a significant survival benefit or improvement in respiratory condition by by giving it pre-hospitally so yeah as i say i i need to look into that a little bit more i've, I've just found that trial now but we'll, we'll link it up on the website because it's, it's certainly an interesting topic and and one that i know has come up when we've discussed COPD in the past and with that we've reached the end of another marathon podcast so big in fact that we had to split it in half so let's summarize what we've covered in these last two podcasts COPD is a terminal condition that affects around 4% of the population. It's most often caused by repeated exposure to noxious substances. Often this is due to smoking, however this isn't always the case and occupational exposure can be to blame. And in about 1% of cases, this is due to a rare genetic condition called alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. COPD is an umbrella term used to describe two respiratory pathologies. These are chronic bronchitis and emphysema. Patients will have features of both diseases, however can tend to present as more one type than the other. Patients with COPD can have day-to-day symptoms managed well, and can have a very good quality of life. We will, however, most encounter them during an exacerbation. 70% of these are from a resultant respiratory tract infection, but these can be from other causes, such as environmental triggers and pulmonary embolism, or pneumothorax, so we need to ensure that our assessment is detailed to search for these. Patients suffering from an exacerbation will present to us with acute or semi-acute shortness of breath, they will often be wheezy, and can have an accompanying cough. But remember, chest pain and hemoptysis are rare in exacerbation, so if these are present, we should consider more sinister causes. We've discussed oxygen's part in managing these patients, as well as the risk of worsening CO2 retention if we aren't cautious with our administration. But hypoxia will kill your patients quicker, so ensure that you give it if they need it. Aim for SATs of 88 to 92% or their normal values if you know them. Before giving a nebulizer to our patients, if appropriate, we should consider getting them to demonstrate their inhaler technique, as this could be a teachable moment for them. But if nebs are required, we should administer short-acting beta agonists and long-acting antimuscarinics. Patients suffering an exacerbation must have steroids to prevent a relapse. This can be intravenously with us if they're coming in, or by arranging contact with urgent or primary care for oral medications. Not all patients need hospital admission, so we should consider if they're safe for discharge and safety net them appropriately. But that's all for this week. As always, you can find an article with links to further resources and some of the extra learning aids that we've been talking about on generalbroadcast.org.uk, where you can find the full back catalogue of all of our other podcasts. But for now, thanks very much for listening, and we will see you next month.